0: decided to make home in Houston, Texas, which was Plymouth Rock Forest I was a walking ball of difference. I like to consider myself as a design technologist. I've always been fascinated by puzzle pieces. I've seen how Google works. I've seen how Microsoft works. The Facebook community has grown over 300,000 people strong. And it's why many people refer to me as Mr. Future Work. As an entrepreneur, you should always be open to pivoting. We pivoted around when COVID-19 happened, the what can look different, but the why can never change. There's a lot of founders and a lot of entrepreneurs give up too soon. It ensures that you're looking proactively for diverse founders. You don't live where the world is. You live where the world is going.
1: What's up, Unfoundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for listening in to another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Tim Salau, co-founder and CEO of Guide, platform for bite-sized learning and talent development for enterprise remote teams. As you can tell, Tim is an exciting speaker and visionary on the future of work. Our episode is sponsored by The Plug. The Plug is a -a one-of-a-kind place to find research, stories, and data about and for the black tech landscape. They have unique reports and analysis and members-only calls with some of today's premier thought leaders. Use the code UNFOUND to save $10 on an annual subscription at tpinsights.com or find a link in the show notes. Now, we've got something new going on here at Founders Unfound. If you're a black founder who is struggling to get recognition, there's another way to get onto our podcast absolutely for free. Just leave a review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. If you do this and identify yourself as a black founder, I will read your review in an upcoming episode. So make sure to plug your company URL and all the relevant handles. The great thing about podcast episodes, they live on and on and on. So why not? You're basically getting a free ad as a thank you for taking the time to give us a review and support our mission. So be sure to drop your review today. So with that in mind, I want to give a shout out and a big thank you to Laverne Gordon, who gave us five stars and wrote, Founders Unfound really hones in on companies that are minority-led to show others who look like us they are just as capable of doing the same or greater. Thank you for creating space. Make sure to check out Laverne's great work with Love Life Now Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of victims and survivors of domestic violence. Find out more at lovelifenow.org or on Twitter, at Found. That's F-O-U-N with no D. So thank you, Laverne, for the kind words and the extraordinary mission you are pursuing. Wasn't that great? Now is your chance. Head over to Apple or Podchaser and drop us a review. As always, you can find Founders Unfound anywhere podcasts live, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Please follow, like, and share to help us grow. Now on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode number 19 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Tim Salau. Tim is a dynamic speaker, tech influencer, innovator, and he's known as Mr. Future of Work. On top of all that, Tim is co-founder and CEO of Guide, a platform for bite-sized learning and talent development for Enterprise Remote Teams. Welcome to the show, Tim. We're super excited to have you. Thank you so much, man. It's an honor to be on your show, man. Super excited. <laughs> all right. Terrific. So let's start off, help the listeners understand exactly what Guide is all about. Yeah. So Guide is the bite-sized learning and talent development platform for Enterprise
0: Remote Teams. Employers can actually upskill their workers on Guide by onboarding them. And, you know, we address use cases within the enterprise, such as onboarding and new hire training, as well as marketing and sales enablement. And essentially your workers can learn and train each other on guide. So if you have a new worker who wants to be successful in the first 90 days, you can create bite-sized courses on guide, recorded on guide for them. And within that first day or that first week
1: that they, uh, into your office and workplace, they will learn all on guide. Awesome. Man, you should be called the future of learning and the future of work. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but before we get more into guide, let's hear a little bit more about you. Can you tell us where you're from and where you grew up? Yeah, Dan. So grew up actually in
0: Nigeria. We moved here, my family and me, in 2020, in, not 2020, in 1999. In fact, one of the core reasons why my dad moved my family and us to America was because, you know, he really was adamant about giving my sisters and me access to better education. And, you know, growing up in Nigeria around the 90s, the education system wasn't that great. So, you know, for them, they already had, my parents, they already had their family, their friends, their community. They even got married in Nigeria. They already had a community there. So it was a huge risk and a huge opportunity as well for them to move us to the United States. But, you know, when we first moved to the United States in 1999, decided to make home in Houston, Texas, which was Clement the Rock for us. (laughs) yeah and essentially man we've we've really grown in texas so grew up in texas as a southerner and that's a lot you'll probably hear me say y'all a lot in this podcast but i've lived in a a few other areas such as seattle austin texas and now currently living in oakland california where we're building our company
1: nice and so how old were you when you moved from nigeria to houston area was six years old man do you remember it
0: you know what man here's what i remember I remember being excited to be moving to America. <laughs> yeah, you know don't don't actually remember too much what, you know, what life was like when I was younger in Nigeria and that's really due to the fact that you know you're so young at that age, you know. Sure. See- Well you can't remember too much, but, you know, have seen scrapbook pictures and I was enjoying my life. You know, I had a pretty great group of friends and there was so much community around me at all times. And so I think for me, fundamentally, I always remember the community that is within our culture, being Nigerian, specifically Yoruba.
1: Can you recall growing up in Houston sort of when you sort of realized that you were maybe different than other kids?
0: Man, you know, I was a walking ball of difference, Dan. <laughs> growing, I growing up as an immigrant, you know, you are—you're just different, man. Like it's like there's no there's no qualms about it. Like people look at you differently. People can tell that you're different. You kind of dress different in the early days. So, I mean, when we moved out here. My parents, you know, my parents weren't, they weren't wealthy. They didn't make, they weren't made of money. In Nigeria, they were wealthy. Actually, they were doing incredibly well in Nigeria. Where if you were thinking about the class system that they were in in Nigeria, my parents were doctors. And they were like, they worked in hospitals and things of that nature. So they were incredibly doing well for themselves. But when we moved to America, we had to start all over again. So my parents had to go back to school. They kind of relied on friends within our first few years moving to America. So we stayed with friends, but eventually they were able to go back to school, get educated, find jobs to um, eventually find us a, a nice little apartment home in the hood of Houston, Texas. And then over time, you know, as they continue to grow in their careers, we eventually moved to the suburbs. But in the early days of what we were in, in Houston, man, I can remember not really understanding how everything worked. You, you have to, you have to go through an acculturation process. Right. Especially at that age. So some of my earliest memories were just walking down the streets of Houston and understanding that I lived in the hood. All I saw around me was, you know, a lot of, I saw a lot of crackheads around me. I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of violence around me. It wasn't the prettiest. I saw a lot of gangbanging around me. That was my environment to a degree. But, you know, it didn't affect me too much because I was, I I lived in in a loving environment. I lived in a loving home. But that's what I saw every time I would step out of my home. And at the same time, when I would go to school, you know, a lot of people would remind me that I'm different. You know, you'd hear t- such as African booty scratcher. And that's because, and that's just a, that's a connotation to, to, to just showcase and indicate that you're different. And at that time, I really fell in love with a lot of American customs. So loving basketball, like I really got into basketball and, and you know, My favorite player early in the the early days of when we moved here was Kobe Bryant because Kobe Bryant was super hot back then around early 2000 um, Lakers, right? And all of these different things that are very American culture. I started to fall in love and be enamored by it. But over time, you know, you, you realize and you start kind of like liking things that you like and you're not really associating your, your identity with the, with the American identity.
1: Right. That's interesting. Did you know what you wanted to be? Did your parents sort of basically put this on you and your sisters about like, hey, we came here, so you need to sort of pursue these sort of opportunities? Or did you did you have any sort of sense of what direction you wanted to go? Man, you
0: know, it's interesting that in, in African culture, your parents either want you to be an engineer some sort of rocket scientist or a doctor, right? Engineer, scientist, doctor, and it's, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> right. But you know, one of the things is I've always had an affinity technology and design. So I like to consider myself as a design technologist, as a, as a before first and foremost a designer. I love design. I love crafting. I love bringing things together. And for me, design wasn't something that my parents knew. My parent, Neither of my parents are designers, but at an early age, I've always been fascinated by puzzle pieces or how things work and the systems around things. So I, by default, always think like a designer in a lot of the work that I did. And eventually that led me to, you know, going to Texas Tech University and getting my psychology degree. And around my third year of my um, study and getting my psychology degree, I decided that I really wanted to get into UX design. And eventually when I got my master's at University of Texas in Austin around information studies in design, right? And eventually that led me to working with Google, eventually led me to working with Microsoft. I've, I've worked with Facebook in, in a capacity as well. So like my entire life has been kind of like, at this point, my entire career has been this kind of passion of like, how do I design things? And at the same time, how does it kind of come back to my core passion on building community? You know, but we'd love to hear your thoughts, Dan, you know, for you, Kind of like were your options already settled in terms of what you were going to be your career path?
1: No, I've, I've talked about this before. I mean, my parents were all about three things really: service, religion, and education. And as long as, long as those those three legs of the stool were getting the appropriate amount of, of attention, then they kind of left it to me. Although my dad, my dad is from Africa, he's from Kenya, and he was an engineer. And so, yeah, there was there was this inclination of you know I wasn't going to be you know, sort of a nine to five, uneducated person in terms of what I was gonna have for opportunities. But yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But tell us, did you did you have a sense of what entrepreneurship was? Because all the things that you just said, you know, design, community, puzzles. I mean, these are the tenets of entrepreneurship. And to some degree, did you did you have a sense of that? Did you know people who were entrepreneurs when you were young and growing up? Nope. Didn't know people who
0: are entrepreneurs. I mean, my closest and my personal definition of entrepreneurship, being of service to a degree, is how are you serving your community? It's how are you creating things for others? Like, what are you doing to be of service? And the best example of that for me early on in my career has always been my dad who built a church because he was so passionate about the work that he does as a pastor, he built a church around 2007. And yeah, I would always remember growing up seeing him being so diligent in building that community within our church. And I think for me, that was an example of entrepreneurship. And it's really a matter of how you building community, how you bringing people together, how you being of service to your fellow man. And what kind of value are you creating for people? For my dad, it was, he was creating a value of fellowship and community and kind of purpose, right? Like, and he, but it was in the vehicle of a church, right? And it, as anyone knows who's ever built a church, building a church is also building a business too at the same time. But my dad, you know, he's a very mild mannered guy. You know, our church is still very, very um, small. But for me, that was like the best example I had of un- an entrepreneur growing up. But, you know, and and as I grow old and now I'm an an entrepreneur, you know, I'm kind of defining what that looks like for me. And, you know, and a lot of the people that kind of like look to me as an inspiration for a leader. And by default, to your point, Dan, you know, entrepreneurship is simply put, you know, designing and being able to adapt and build something of value for people. Right. Like fundamentally, it's not as complex as some people sometimes make it out to be, in my opinion.
1: That's true. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, can you build something that adds values to people's lives that doesn't exist today, or at least nobody's doing it the way that you want to do it? Yeah. You graduate with this this awesome combination of psychology and and sort of the the world of design and UX. And so you work with these companies. How did the entrepreneurial spark get lit? I mean, what what were the things or the events or sort of the background around, okay, I got to go build a company. How did that come about?
0: Yeah, you know, definitely did not from um, did not just set out one day and woke up and say, I have to build a company. In fact, I don't think anyone should ever even think like that. <laughs> I would just wake up and say, I, I want to build a company. Because being a founder, and there's a difference, and I actually just should a post on this on my LinkedIn. There's a difference between being a founder and being a serial entrepreneur, right? I'm personally a serial entrepreneur and a founder, right? Founders build things because they want to build movement. They really have a very clear vision for the world and they won't give up until that vision is a reality, right? Still, entrepreneurs, you know, they build things, they can sell it, they trade it, <laughs> you know, they can they can capitalize on it, but they're always building things. And even for me, outside of the work that I do as our CEO of Guide, I dabble in a lot of other things. I have like my own T-line that I'm currently working on. Like I'm always building or kind of interested in something as an entrepreneur. But for me, our, for our, what we're building with Guide, it's a venture. It's something that's very, very long term. So you have to treat it with a lot of patience. And for me, This kind of spark to be an entrepreneur, but more importantly, a founder really began when, you know, I've worked with big companies. I've seen how WeWork works. I've seen how Google works. I've seen how Microsoft works. I've had a lot of those experiences and fundamentally, I've been like building, you know, we've been building this movement that we call Guy for years now. You know, I started with building the community in 2017, which was a Facebook community and has grown over 300,000 people strong worldwide. And then, you know, I met my co-founder, Taban Cosmo's. While I was working with Microsoft and, you know, he really brought that technology CTO mind to what we're doing and and the passion that we both share in terms of educating and inspiring people. And all of that has kind of cycled into what we now have as a guide. So there was a cascading of multiple different things that actually led to us building this venture that is like our company. But us as entrepreneurs, you know, we're always like, we're always looking to create. We're always looking to create solutions that add value. And I think that for me, entrepreneurship fundamentally goes back to what we we're talking about, Dan. How can we add value to people, right? In a way where you're you're bringing them more joy than you are paying, or maybe more importantly, you're solving a, a fundamental problem that they're looking for a solution for. And I think there's always going to be room for that. If you as a individual, you're always looking to be of cert, right? We'd love to get your thoughts on this, man.
1: You really hit on this really interesting word, movement, right? Which I think if you look at some of the bigger successful startups, especially the ones that sort of appeal or go directly to consumers, it really is about a movement. It's about sort of the status quo hasn't served us in a certain way. I feel it. I sense it. I experience it alongside you, you know, Mr. or Miss Customer. And let's figure out a way to make the world better. And we'll do it with products. We'll do it with service. We'll do it with experiences and focus in, you know, certain aspects of life. But, but I love that term movement and having a service mindset. So, you know, I, I, I think that's where success comes from. It's not just about, can I make a widget or a tool,
0: <laughs> you
1: know, that, that'll get you to pay $10 a month or something like that. So we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with Tim Salao from Guide.
2: Woo! Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The Plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual pro membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our black owned VC firms index, or the top 100 black researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Use code unfound to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug insights.com.
1: So we're back with Tim. And so, Tim, we just started on the backside of the break talking about the beginning of the journey for Guide. Tell us more about sort of when you and your co-founder decided to ratchet this thing up and really just sort of launch it and say, this is what we're going to do.
0: Yeah, man. So it was literally about a year and a half ago that Devon and me decided to start building Guide. And literally a friend of ours called Chad Oda connected us. Right. Chad was like, hey, Taman, you're really passionate about building something in the area of mentorship and education and skills training. You know, I know another guy named Tim Salah who's passionate about the same thing. And Chad introduced us together. And the, the next thing you know, you know, a few days later, I told Taman, would love to meet, meet up with you at a coffee shop. From the first time we met, Taman and me really just hit it off very, very well. It's due to the fact that we're both immigrants. We're both incredibly, incredibly passionate about technology. We're super, we're always thinking. And then we're both highly entrepreneurial. We're creatives, right? In that regard, we're always looking for like, what can we create? How can we serve people? Very service oriented. So fundamentally we share the, we share the same value. And, you know, at that time, Taban was actually building this product that was kind of a LinkedIn lookalike called Giraffe. It wasn't really a product that we could like go to market with or really build a venture around. So eventually we just kind of, we started looking for what are some of the problems we can solve in the education space in terms of helping people with upskilling and skills training. And eventually we met our former operator and still a co-founder, because once you're a founder, you're forever a founder, in my opinion. Our, our co-founder, Mike Yates, who's no longer operationally with the company, but he really kind of helped us say, hey, maybe you all should focus on addressing the problem around life skills ed in, in tech and in high school education. So we dabbled in that market for quite some time and then eventually, you know, we pivoted around when COVID nineteen happened and really most of more so are not focused on enterprise. But it really started with, man, me leading to and really like loving, loving his spirit, loving his um his heart for for building things. And ever since then, man, it's been a year and a half. We've been on our journey and we are building our incredibly powerful movement and, and community. And I think one of the things personally that we're grateful for is that we're seeing it. And, you know, since we've launched, we, we continue to see a lot of great testimonials and reaction around the, the
1: product. Nice. We're in this pandemic and obviously at a personal level and a societal level, we're, we're seeing lots of impact. But tell us more about how you sort of adjusted how Guide would address the opportunities that may have gone away or the new ones that may have come about because of COVID-19.
0: Yeah, so we were already building Guy on enterprise-grade infrastructure. And when COVID-19 happened, you know, it just kind of fast-tracked the shift towards remote work. And one importantly, enabling a decentralized workforce. And for us, the way we're designing Guy was always kind of a fit for this trend of the future of work. And, you know, for me personally, I have been studying the future for, for a few years now. And it's why many people refer to me as Mr. Future Work, it, it, which is kind of a, a title that I started a few years ago because I was so passionate about the space. So, you know, being kind of a, a practitioner and at the same time realizing what we're building and how the ed tech market really wasn't the market for us to build a sustainable business in. It was really kind of we saw that the market opportunity actually opened up for us. In a greater scope, so you know, to a degree, you know, we still allow people to individually buy a subscription to Guide, but now our focus is more of how do we empower like the entire an enterprise workforce. And I think for us, the the opportunities that opened up is that now everyone is learning, working, and at the, and fundamentally living their life from home. <laughs> All right, taking care of your family. Yeah, you know, go to you know, taking your kids to school. I mean, ordering in, driverless, and fundamentally also learning and kind of like taking control of your career from home. So, you know, we literally around COVID-19, we pivoted the company to say, okay, we'll build the web app and we're going to be, we have a mobile app that's coming out, out soon. But fundamentally, you know, it's funny that when we pivoted the company, when we pivoted, nothing really changed about our core mission at, at the end of the day, kind of like the what changed, but our why never changed. I think it goes to our point in this conversation that we're having, Daniel, is that like it takes a movement to like really change things. When you're building a company or you're you're an upstart, you're a startup, you really have to lead with the movement. But you should never change that why. The what can look different, but the why can never change. So for us, you know, what opened up was like a bigger market. And what didn't change really was, you know, our our core reason for why we exist as a company and and kind of like the venture and the movement we're building.
1: That's so important. And hey, on Foundation out there, there's a little nugget from Tim. A lot of people think about startups like you're inventing something and it's about the idea. It is about saying, hey, the world needs to change in a certain way, or there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And I'm going to try to do it a certain way based upon what the world has told me and where the opportunity lies, but it may change. And so this is a a great testament to that. But take us, I'm really interested in this because I've talked to other companies that have gone through this. Take us back to the to the point where you sort of, you and Taban said, hey, this is something we need to think about doing differently. I mean, was it like one of those Friday afternoon, like what are we going to do? Or was it a series of conversations? Or when was sort of that decision and how did that come about of saying, okay, yes, let's try this other opportunity or let's try this other direction, I should say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I could take you back to this moment because it was a very interesting moment. And literally, you know, when we decided to pivot right before then, our former CEO and our co-founder, Mike Gates, decided to leave the company. Which it was understandable why he was leaving. It was COVID nineteen. <laughs> like he had to read. So Mike actually had a family, and he had other responsibilities and other things going on outside of the company we were building. So you know, uh, he he had to really focus on everything else he had going on. So he he decided to leave the company. So right before then, and around that time as well, we were also thinking about like. How are we building a sustainable business model? Because we didn't really have a business model that fit the the product that we were trying to build in a sense, right? So initially, our business model was ad-based. Let's focus on ad-based revenue. But if you were to think about, like, let's go back to a few months ago when COVID-19 really made waves in America, you know, every ad, ad-based businesses right now are all struggling. Even if some of them aren't struggling from a revenue standpoint, a lot of them are struggling from a public scrutiny st- st- standpoint, right? Right. So a great test case example would be Twitter recently got hacked. Facebook continues to struggle with moderation and quality and kind of like, you know, how are they really vetting the people who post ads on their platform, right? There's a lot of scrutiny involved there, right? So ad-based businesses have been struggling. And then fundamentally, an ad-based business model, based on the way we were trying to build the product, didn't really make sense for the market we were formerly in, in terms of ad tech. And and it didn't make sense because we would have been trying to do too much. One, trying to build enough of an audience and at the same time trying to build enough of a supply side, right, to kind of continue keeping us going. The ed tech market is just super volatile, right? Every school is different. Every teacher has different needs. Every state has different kind of ordinances around education. Really a clear path to predictability, if you want to build a sustainable business in that, in that space. So you, you have to be in it for a quiet fight, but it's just, it's just a very volatile market. So it's not, it's not the best market to build an actual business in. So around the time when Mike, you know, decided to leave, you know, we were already reconsidering what do we need to do better so we can continue sustaining the business. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, the writing was on the wall, the way we were building guide, how we were already thinking about the product. And then what our vision was and our mission was, I was like, let's just go to enterprise. Right. Because we had the capacity and we had the capability of we could just everything we were building. We didn't have to throw it away. We can actually just kind of repurpose it for a different world. Right. To your point. Dan, and it was a matter of like saying, oh, well, we're already building a social learning platform. But maybe it's maybe it's a better opportunity and it's much more better for our business that we build it in a market where. There's actually a more more of a need and demand versus an ed tech. And then more importantly, we can build actually a predictable and sustainable business. Especially when you're an enterprise, there's much more of a consistent kind of expectation on what the sales motion could be or who your target buyer can be, right? In terms of their size and, and and being the fact that every company overnight shifted to being a remote company, the market is huge, right? right. <laughs> there's no kind of like there's no ceiling even in terms of on um, what your market cap can be, right? So you can build as as big of a business as possible in, you know, learning and development right now, which is a healthy and growing market. So, you know, we, we you just see all of those signals as an entrepreneur and as a business person and you make that pivot. And that's another thing, Dan, that I think we should probably talk about is like how as a founder, you shouldn't give up, but also as an entrepreneur, like you should always be open to pivoting because the reality is that if you're building a business, like, and you care about the business, you care about the mission, like there's always possibilities. There's always an opportunity out there. But one of the things that, you know, is kind of, it's sad to me that it's a lot of founders and a lot of entrepreneurs give up too soon. Right. And for example, like we all went through COVID-19. I went through COVID-19. Dan's gone through COVID-19. know anyone that went through COVID-19 but for us that wasn't kind of the death of our business or our company or our movement it was more like oh this is a blessing in disguise right and I think uh, one of the things I often encourage entrepreneurs and founders to think about is like you know why not how can you see your business from a different lens and how do you see how do you see kind of whatever you're building from an opportunistic standpoint not a pessimistic
1: I love that. And you're right. And I think that's part of the resilience that needs to be kind of core to your constituency, so to speak, or your uh, constitution, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Because it is about, yeah, this, you know, I I, I liken it to, you know, sort of, we would probably be some of those explorers back in the 14 and 1500s, right? It's like, yeah, somebody said India is over there on the other side of this big ocean, and I don't know how to get there, but I'm going to go try and see if I can find it. And <laughs> I'm going to sail north for a while and then figure out, you know, it's getting cold. India's not cold. I don't think that's the right way. We need to go back the other direction. And but you're right. It's like keeping this this large vision, this mission in mind. And just knowing that the steps that are going to take you there, the the, the twists and turns are going to be a meandering journey, potentially. And so, uh, yeah, I love that. So tell us a little bit more about the business itself. I mean, do you sell to, to companies or individuals and companies? Is this subscription-based or how, how does that work?
0: Yeah, man. So it's subscription-based. So it's, it's B2B, B2C, but primarily B2B. B2B is our key revenue driver, right? So us selling uh, subscriptions to businesses who have their workers, whether it be a hundred to ten thousands, kind of onboard them to guide. And we charge businesses $30 per individual head. That allows us to really, really kind of like scale and at the same time, be able to have quality on the platform because they're using it for their own internal use cases, such as, you know, new hire onboarding, sales enablement, leadership training. Right. And the, the real powerful thing about us as a, as a business is the fact that we're end to end integrated in terms of like on guide. There's a camera you can use to record and create the courses that you can immediately post on the platform. And then there's a feed where, you know, your, your people can learn and kind of get the latest bite sized training content that anyone within your employee base has, has created. And, you know, for us, our vision is that we see every creator within the enterprise as a creator, right? Like every any worker, if you're a subject matter expert, you're a creator. We want you created on guide, every single one. So we have like this very powerful vision of like every single creator within an enterprise and really broadly the world can create courses on guide. So if you can't learn on guide and buy an individual subscription for yourself because you may not work for a big enterprise company, you can at least go into an enterprise that has guide and you can use it to learn from your fellow CEO or your peer, right? And even with, within Guide Internally, we use Guide to train each other and for kind of things such as internal cons. So we're we're getting a lot of love around it, you know, where I was actually talking to a chief people officer the other day. And she was like, look, I don't have the budget, but hey, we're interested in growing with you all, right? Like. <laughs> And and I and I told her like you know it's cool we're we're a low cost solution based on how we're positioned in the market right so like you you may not have we don't need that big of a budget but we we truly love partnering with great companies who believe in our mission and our vision and you know it was just a, it was just so funny to hear her just be frank about hey I don't have the budget but would love to work with you and partner with you I think it, it's a it's a true testament to kind of uh, what we're building
1: that's a great story and as you think about sort of where you want to go what's kind of the big vision. For guide, is there like a number or a, a market share or number of people <laughs> learning?
0: Yeah, the big vision is, is 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 very simple. You know, we believe every creator. We want to empower every creator with the skills, mindset, and opportunities for a fulfilling career. We really fundamentally mean that. And you know, right now there's an estimated seven billion people on Earth. By 2025, it will be 8.1 billion people. And the big vision for me is, you know, we'll know we've achieved our mission when we see every single person with the necessary skills, uh, opportunities to lead and design a career path that brings them fulfillment and allows them to take care of their families. I think we have a very unique strategy in terms of how we're getting there as a business. And, you know, for me, fundamentally, when I think about product and my philosophy around product, there are very few winner take all markets there even in a market such as l d where there's a lot of different players we have a very unique value prop so i think i will be satisfied when all 8.1 soon to be billion people on earth have access to a guide course <laughs> right and as a founder it has to be like that because it's actually possible it's actually possible for us to do that you know it takes time and that's why i often you know and I love being on on your on your show, Dan, because it's founders, right? Like, if this is about founders. It's like founders have to realize it takes time right it doesn't it doesn't happen right overnight yeah. it doesn't happen through a recession it doesn't happen within the chaos of the storm that is a COVID-19 it takes time but it will happen and you know the same can be said of a Microsoft or Amazon those founders made it happen right Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos made it happen the Mark Zuckerbergs they made it happen even if you don't like the product too much right now right you know whoever made CVS he or she made it happen right Founders make it happen and it goes beyond them. And that's founder mentality. And I think that, you know, it's really happy. I'm happy that we're talking about it because I don't really get a chance to talk about this on a lot of
1: different podcasts. Nice. We're going to dive more into some of that for sure. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Tim Salau from Guide.
2: Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual PRO membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes such as our Black-Owned VC Firms Index or the Top 100 Black Researchers in Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com.
1: So we're back with Tim Salao from Guide. So Tim, I'm fascinated by this. You've got a remote team. You've got the dynamics of COVID, one of the co-founders moving out. How have you been able to handle just every day getting up and trying to sort of build the business in this environment?
0: Man, (laughs) dude, I feel so fulfilled every day I work on Guide because it's progress over perfection it's progress over perfection. I love that. Founders think a certain type of way, Dan, because you talked to founders, you know how this is. There's the world, there's your product slash business, and then there's you, the, the founder. You actually live in a completely different reality.
1: <laughs> That's true. That is so true.
0: You don't live where the world is. You live where the world is going, or more importantly, where you want to take world, right? And you want to take the people who are your customers, who you are in service to, right? And so for me, every you know, we were able to push through COVID-19 with ease and literally we pivoted the business within two to three days. And we actually were able to go to market within three months within that pivot, right? Because we were building a mobile app, but then we had to build a web app as a supporting component to the mobile app and then position our business entirely. We did that all within three months because we're a small lean team. Which, but even if we were operating at a, at that same, at a bigger scale, it would have still have been that fast because we're founders, right? And I'm the founding and operating CEO of the company. But for me, it was like building a business and leading a company or leading, you know, our team through a, a crisis like this. We're in service to customers. We're in service to our mission. So it wasn't even a, I, I, I not once did we even think about, oh, COVID-19 happened. We should shut out. We should stop. I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't even think like that. Like not once. Cause it was a matter of like, what can we do to, to ensure that we thrive through this? Right. We still are focused on our mission, but maybe we have to change how or the what or, you know, kind of go through this process of saying, okay, is there a better way to do what we need to do given our current climate? Right. And I think that's how you have to think as a founder is like, what's possible? even though maybe this door has shut. And for us, it was realizing that, well, we aren't gonna grow a successful sustainable business just focused on high school education because that just isn't a big enough market and it's way too volatile. It's better mm-hmm. that we focus completely enterprise and we really, you know, we we position ourselves as an enterprise company. We did that in less than three months, right? And for for me as a founder, you know, it it, it wasn't like we made any sacrifices. We were adapting. You have to be able to adapt as a founder. You have to be able to like understand, oh, the world is saying this, all right, we'll go this, right? And you have to be able to understand when you're receiving those signals because context does matter as you adapt. And make sure you're adapting in the direction of your why, not in the direction of what your competition wants to take you or, or something that doesn't align with you. And I think that's my biggest tip to any founder listening is that, like, understand that the why is your North Star, right? And you can always adapt your business to your why. And another great example I want to give for this is, you know, look at the Salesforce or Airbnb, right? Like, Mark Benioff is one of the greatest founders in the world. I love that guy. And that's just because you can just see how he often can always make a business opportunity out of anything, right? <laughs> like, COVID happens salesforce.com what they they announced work.com like work.co and it's essentially helping states um local governments and even enterprise businesses adapt to covid-19 right boom using salesforce And their CRM and as well as their kind of all the other things that Salesforce has going on, right? Right, 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 right. I'll just make a business opportunity out of this because I want to be of service to my customers. Airbnb, Brian Jesky, right? They pivoted the business to say, okay, how do we offer online experiences that hosts can manage, right? You have to think like that when you're a founder. And, you know, for, for me, man, I think that COVID-19, you know, it, it didn't, it actually really kind of bolstered our vision. You know, and, and I often have to be mindful of saying that because a lot of businesses died due to COVID-19, but our business it hasn't died at all.
1: But I, I think you're right. It's it's this combination of fortitude and attitude, right? Do I have the resilience? Do I have sort of the glass half full uh, viewpoint of, okay, how can we use this as a way for us to do something better or different or respond in a certain way? And that's very entrepreneurial, very founder centric for sure. Let's switch gears a little bit. And we like to talk on the show a little bit about being a Black founder. So you and your co-founder are both immigrants, African heritage heritage. Are you reminded of that regularly in your entrepreneurial journey? Is it something that comes up either positively or more of a challenge through day-to-day and in your interactions with the outside world?
0: You know, it's funny, man. First of all, I'm a privileged Black founder. Even me as a Black founder, I have to recognize privilege because I've worked with some of the top companies in the world, man. And Microsoft, Google, Facebook, like I've, I've been there, done that. And now we're building our own company. And I think that what I don't like often is that, you know, there is this stigma in the world where you always have to remind every Black founder that you're Black, so we should give you a piecemeal. We should recognize the fact that you're Black and not treat you as equal to any other founder, right, with an idea or a vision and the charisma and the passion to make it happen, right? And that's why I'm, I'm very, very focused on, you know, even with building our company, we're very focused on ethics and equity, right? And you know, for me, as I've been fundraising, I'm grateful enough to say that when I whenever I've talked to an investor, I have not received any disrespect as a black founder. It's I mean, it's it's fundraising is hard, no matter if you're black or white. For some people who are privileged and white and who come from the money, it's quite easy. It's not hard at all. Right, it's absolutely not hard. And when you look at the stats of the fact that there's only one percent of venture capital goes to black and brown and people in minorities in minority um categories, that's fundamentally there's a problem with that. But it, when you think about being a black founder in this climate and kind of seeing the the attention everything the last six months has, has brought to um, what the future of work, what the future of venture capital looks like, I think I'm optimistic that things are changing. But fundamentally, I'm grateful and 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 I'm I'm saying that's from a privileged stance because. I've worked in tech and I know tech and I know the lingo and I know how to do all of these things. Like I haven't received any disrespect, but I always have to kind of come from a place of compassion when I'm meeting other black founders who don't have as big of a brand as I, or they haven't been privileged to do the things that I've done and they completely don't get the opportunities or don't get the respect That they deserve when they're pitching or when they're fundraising, right? And it really goes back to what we need to do as an entire ecosystem and as leaders in building more equity within the fundraising process. And what I believe that looks like is not always having to remind Black founders that they're Black. In fact, we can actually take a more positive connotation, remind them that they themselves can actually build a sustainable business, without needing venture capital, because not every business needs venture capital. And recognizing that giving them the same fair access to capital, right? So I'm very much so against a lot of funds or firms who kind of say, we'll just, you know, put aside $5 million just for Black founders, right? Like That's weird. And I think it's actually very unethical because that's not how you should treat, especially in the fundraising process, when you try to kind of use tokenism or you try to just pull away a bit of what you have just for a, a small pool, that's actually tokenism. And it's actually causing further marginalization. And it, it's actually not healthy at all because it makes it, seem as if that same individual, that same black founder who has the same idea, who has the same potential to build an amazing billion dollar business isn't equal to or has the same level of potential as their white or their privileged counterpart. So I'm, I'm often very against you know firms and, and, and people who do that because that's not the right way we should go about kind of empowering marginalized and underappreciated founders.
1: That's quite an interesting viewpoint. So what do you think are some of the ways that we can overcome that? Yeah, I
0: I love that you asked this. I love companies and founders now. Like, shout out to Mrs. Arla Hamilton. You know, who doesn't know her? She's building an amazing, amazing legacy and movement in what she's doing with backstage capital, investing in diverse founders. And if you look at her portfolio... Like diverse founders for her is LGBTQ, IA, you know, black, brown. It doesn't mean that you can't be white because she's invested in some white founders as well who are a part of her portfolio. People who come literally from diverse, non traditional backgrounds, like literally diverse, like it's a wide variety. And right. you literally see it on her site. It's very evident, it's very visible. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So that's one angle. So for, let's say, for all of the traditional firms and VCs who maybe can't build their own, like just diverse, focused fund, this actually that you can do from how you recruit potential associates, partners, GPs, MPs into your fund to ensure that they're all thinking about your portfolio, as well as your firm's Portfolio management structure from a place of equity, right? So essentially, so I'm an investor. I invest, so I know a lot of what goes on behind the scenes. Essentially, what, what's really wrong is that there's too many. How do I say this? A lot of firms operate based on the kind of like this insider network model, right? Where right. I know, you know, where so, where a friend of mine who's either the you know white enterprise CEO of this company refers to me to this company, and the founder fits the same t- stereotype of of a founder which is Caucasian male, um, went to Stanford or has this very privileged background that I recognize I can relate with. And for me, it signals that they might be building a high margin business in seven to 10 years. Right. Right. way to think about one investing, it actually really, it actually casterizes you from the bunch of other opportunities from people who may not fit that same model. And it's it's just, a, it's the worst ways to scout. Right. So the best investment method that you can actually build within your investment firm is actually more, importantly thinking about, one, it starts with hiring. Just hire diverse people. <laughs> like fundamentally, hire associates who didn't just go to Stanford. Hire hire people who want to be associates that maybe went to West Governors University or Texas Tech University, right? Like do all of those different things, but also have a very non-traditional path themselves, right? One, Or maybe having a focused thesis and then make sure you're proactively scouting. And when you're when you're maybe looking for scouts, try to make sure that you have a diverse ecosystem of scouts that maybe are at universities or at part of accelerators and make sure that they're diverse as well. Right. So make sure that you have this insider network, but also an outsider network to match it and to kind of ensure that you're not a part of what we consider network bias. Right. So you're not biased to only choose a certain type of founder and their, you know, specific business as fits your thesis, right? So within whatever thesis that you, you found for your company and your investment portfolio, stick to your thesis. But even as you select the selection criteria needs to tr- change and it changes when you start actually making sure that you one are nurturing diversity within your firm structure. But more importantly, you're actually, you're using a scouting method that completely is objective and ensures that you're looking proactively for diverse founders, right? Founders who do not fit the traditional stereotype and mold. And only very few firms who are a part of that traditional VC model do that.
1: And that's a great playbook. I love that. This idea of an inside network and an outside network and reaching out. And I, I totally agree. I think diversity is really the ultimate norm we want to get to. And diversity means many different aspects, right? It can mm-hmm. be of thought, of heritage, of background, of experience, of perspective, right? And, you know, I've said this before, but it's, it's pretty common, you know, academic research now that diversity of input creates a better outcome. And so I love love what you're saying there so i want to be conscious of your time and this is a great conversation and but before we go i just want to make sure to to let you give a shout out for if people want to find out more about guide about mr future of work about anything any any social handles or ways that you'd uh, recommend people find out more or get in touch with you
0: yeah if you want to learn more about guide and the movement that we're building please check us out guideapp.co sign up for early access our beta is we're in beta always in beta, forever in beta. We're building quite the movement. We're really excited. You know, my co-founder and I, we're we're black founders. We own a majority of our company, which a lot of founders can't say. I think for anyone that's listening right now, never, never let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Never let anyone tell you that you can't build software. You can't build a company. You can't build a venture. You can't lead your movement. Never let anyone like put any kind of doubt in your mind to tell you that you can't do something because we're doing it. And, you know, when you, when we look at the stats, we look at the odds, none of that phases us, right? Because we already know what we're building is so powerful. And more importantly, the world needs it. So if you ever are building something that the world needs, keep going, keep pushing. And check out guideapp.co because we're building something that the world needs.
1: (laughs) I love it. You're a superhero. Well, thanks again, Tim. Really appreciate you taking the time. This has been great. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate it. We'd like to thank our guest, Tim Salau, and our sponsor, The Plug. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound forward slash listen to. That's listen to. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at foundersunfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Editing and production by Internet Radio Corporation. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzuk. Our music was composed and arranged by Michael Kihanya. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.